Hello, Media Evil listeners. This episode is a bit of a blast from the past. It is actually the very first Media Evil episode recorded all the way back in 2018, which Ali, my original co-host, and I did as a test run. I'm bringing this particular episode out of the vault, as it were, because it is surprisingly timely. It focuses on the 2010 film Black Death about the most famous of medieval pandemics. Since we are currently, especially in the United States, in the midst of our own pandemic, this seemed like a good time to bring out this episode, in which I'll also be inserting a few thoughts about pandemic responses, medieval and modern. In particular, I'll be explaining why calling the U.S. response to COVID-19 medieval is wrong. In short, because medieval responses to the pandemic were in many ways better than what we're currently seeing in the 21st century United States. So please enjoy this simultaneous return to 2018 and reminder of the particular historical moment in which we now find ourselves in 2020. Thanks for listening to Media Evil. Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. My name is Sarah F. Decker. And my name is Oliver Angelo Brady. I don't know. I didn't realize we were using middle names, but we are. I use If Decker professionally as a double last name. So I'm counting up. It's just more showing (laughs) off fancy stuff that's going on. Sarah, what is Media Evil? Media Evil is a podcast in which we talk about the ways in which movies, TV shows, and books depict the medieval world. Yes, so we'll be talking about uh, these various pieces of media and the ways in which they depict the medieval, medieval world, which is what I just said. And uh, we'll be discussing uh, to what extent they're historically accurate, to what extent they're not, and what ideas they reveal about how people think about the Middle Ages. Now, you say Middle Ages, and I'm going to do this every single week because you know that this is how I like to prefer them. Can I call it the Dark Ages, Sarah? You cannot call it the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages is a term that tends to imply that the Middle Ages was, in fact, dark, that nothing happened of any importance, and that it was just this sort of horrible, violent period, which I think is essentially a way to pretend that modernity is not violent, which is not correct. And just a random question, not related to our movie today, but did you watch our movie today? I did watch our movie today. I believe Dark Ages is a very accurate description of the movie that we watched. The people who made this movie clearly thought it was set in the Dark Ages, uh, visually at least. (laughs) And Sarah, um, what led you to wanting to do a podcast about this? Like, what is your expertise in in this field? So I have a PhD in medieval history, which I guess is literally the qualification one can have for talking about medieval history and teach pre-modern history at the university level professionally. And I'm really interested in how these films depict the Middle Ages, because especially when my students come into the classroom, uh, this is very clearly the kind of ideas that they have in their head in terms of the expectations for what they're going to learn about the Middle Ages. So because of movies and TV, you have to kind of readdress and 
and fix people's visions of what they think was actually happening during this time period. Exactly. That people come in with all of these misconceptions about the Middle Ages that are based on, uh, I mean, anything from Game of Thrones to, uh, you know, First Night to probably not really Black Death because I'm not sure anyone has ever seen this movie before. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'd I'd certainly never heard of it until you suggested it for the podcast. And even when you did, I was going, how have I not heard it? Because... This is right up my alley, this sort of thing. And I'm there going, it must, like, I must have heard of this. And I'm looking through the cast list saying, Sean Bean, Eddie Redman, Carice Van Ouden. I know all of these people. I've seen them and enjoyed them in several movies, not possibly Eddie Redman, but I've enjoyed them in several (laughs) movies and TV shows. You've seen Eddie Redman in movies. I have seen him, but I don't think I've ever enjoyed him. But... We'll get to that so, in a few minutes. Yes. Yeah, so I think I came across this movie. I think it was actually a YouTube compilation of all of the deaths of Sean Bean. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and there was, I guess, I think I was like, oh, there's another medieval death of Sean Bean. And I don't know what it is. And so then I figured out what this movie was. Um, which led to us uh, having a death pool or dead pool for uh, Sean Bean. Um, we'll talk about who won. It was me. Uh, later on but um, yeah uh, spoiler alert Sean Bean dies in the movie it was a particularly brutal death as well and very graphically depicted they uh, they really decided to go full force on the depicting the middle ages as a violent period <laughs> they really did um, now as ever on the podcast we're going to have separate segments so we're going to um, talk about the movie itself we're going to introduce it and talk about the stuff that happens through it then we're going to find out from Sarah what the movie got right and what the movie got wrong and then we're going to learn about the actual historical period that this takes place in and what would have happened during the actual plague which is what the Black Death is about Um, and then we'll try and come up with our own versions of a better movie that could have been made based around the exact same title as this one here. So Sarah we've kind of already let people know but what movie did we watch today? So today we watched the movie Black Death, which came out in 2010, starring Sean Bean, Eddie Redmayne, and Carice Van Houten. So essentially, this is a movie about uh, the arrival of the Black Death in England and the way in which people reacted to it, or a specific way in which people reacted to it. (laughs) Black Death being in the bubonic plague, which was um, kind of like a really bad flu in so much as falling off your bike is kind of like crashing an airplane. Yeah, and you also got really unattractive purplish sores. Unattractive if you're not into that sort of thing, Sarah. I mean, some people really like purplish sores, but <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that uh, to the side for now. Ugh. So <laughs> what, is, what is the premise of our movie, Sarah? So the premise is essentially that... So Eddie Redmayne is a monk named Osmond, which I'm pretty sure is a name that was very popular in about the 10th century and was not used <laughs> since. And this movie is set in 1348, which is the 14th century. Yes. And clearly, it's a little bit anachronistic to have a monk named Osmond at the time. Yeah, so the names are a little bit off. Uh, So Eddie Redmayne is hanging out in this monastery. And uh, you know pretty much immediately that Eddie Redmayne is not a very good monk because it becomes clear very quickly that he has a girlfriend, which monks are really not supposed to have. She is a, a very pretty blonde lady, and her name is also something that i never because it's they keep saying avril like avril avril and then when you read it it's avril with an e in the middle of it yeah that wasn't a name 
I mean, I'm not sure that's actually was ever a name. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's even a name now. If I ever met somebody named Avril, I'd be like, that's not a name. But in this period, particularly, we're in the period where there's about like a dozen names per gender in any given country. <laughs> and okay, Avril Sarah, I'm going to I'm going to put you on the spot. What names would have been popular in 14th century England? So for women, Catherine's a pretty solid one. Anne's a pretty solid one. You'd probably have some Janes. Mary. Mary's always good. Let's... Mary's always good with the Christian set anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, Mary's pretty solid. And then for men, like, there are probably a lot of Johns, a lot of Williams. There's really a lot of Johns and Williams in England in particular. <laughs> that, Some... That's all you need to know. Yeah. Billy and John. Yeah, just everyone's named William and John. <laughs> Brief note from future. I did actually look this up. Averill is a name associated with a 7th century saint. However, it was still not a popular name in the 14th century. So it was a name, but it was not a name that people would have thought of at this particular time. Now let's return to 2018. So we start with this monk, this young monk, who's clearly getting it on with Pretty Blonde Lady, uh, played by, it's Eddie Redman is our, our main character, Osmond. Yes. And uh, her name is Avril, and she's played by Kimberly Nixon. I do, I've never seen Kimberly Nixon in anything else, I don't think. I don't think I have either. Her name strikes a bell like she might be an Australian soap actress, but I haven't mm. looked that up, and I'm not going to. But I think that's, it might, she might have been, I'm not sure. But then we could find out that she was in Batman versus Superman or something. So, Which I actually I haven't seen, that, so that still oh, wouldn't help. But <laughs> It's a movie that's almost as dark as this movie. Visually or plot-wise? Both visually and plot-wise. And the plot probably makes as much sense as this one does. So, Eddie, I think it would be fair to say that he's not a churchy monk. He is not. Um, He's very much not a churchy monk. Like our good friend Friar Tuck is not a, tur- a churchy friar. So what happens then, Sarah? So a man appears at this monastery who is described as the legate to the bishop. So first of all, actually, it's not entirely clear what the bishop is doing and why he's at the monastery. I am Ulrich, envoy to the bishop. Mm-hmm. So he's described as the legate to the bishop. It doesn't actually say who he's the legate from, that term usually implies that he would probably be the papal legate, but it never actually says this. Yeah, when we were watching it, I definitely said, I'm assuming he means the Bishop of Rome, referring to the Pope, because I didn't know where the movie was set. And we don't right. find out for an hour or so into the actual movie that we're, we're in England at the minute. And I'm not sure they ever actually say they're in England. I think it's that it's said on the internet that they're in England, and at some point they start referring to King Edward, who is in fact the King of England at this time. Okay, so at least they got that much correct. Yeah, and also, fun fact, although uh, uh, the Pope is still, of course, the Bishop of Rome in 1348, he would not be living in Rome, he would be living in Avignon. Oh, very interesting. I genuinely did not know that. Why would he be living in Avignon? There is a about 70-year period uh, known as neutrally as the Avignon Papacy and less neutrally as the Babylonian Captivity where the popes just moved to Avignon. Um, It initially happened basically because of a long conflict with the French king who ended up basically murdering one of the popes. Oh, wow. um, And kind of taking over the papacy, essentially. And and it's then, and as a result of the kind of attempt then of the pope to go back to Rome, that you have the Great Schism. And so for a little while in the late 14th century, there's actually a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon. That's... I 
see, this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast is because as much as I love the medieval era, mostly I just love dudes with swords stabbing each other. Um, my own um, area of expertise lines in science and, and, and stuff. So to learn when Sarah is telling me this stuff, I was genuinely, Sarah tell you because we, we record this with video. I'm genuinely, I've got my, my hand on my, <laughs> on my chin just going, wow, tell me more of this, Sarah. Avignon, I didn't know there was two popes. So, yeah. Um, at this point, the Pope was probably living in France. Yes, the Pope is hanging out in Avignon, but he can still, you know, send a legate, and we can probably assume that that's who Ulrich is supposed to be. And Ulrich is played by our boy, Sean Bean. It's so, so exciting to see somebody who is a good actor. He is a good actor, yeah. And he, he comes in, and he's super intense from the get-go. He is. He is... Also, I'm not sure he smiles once this entire movie. Um, I think he smiles right at the end, just as he's about to get... Well, we'll talk about what happens to him. <laughs> I think he's enjoying it. Perhaps he saw the face of God just as this was about to happen. That might be a kind of evil smirk because he knows he'll be saved. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Um, so he comes and he confronts the head monk and he's looking for... The abbot. The abbot and he, the head monk. I knew he was called that. Why am I doing? Ah, oh, God, this is what I meant when sometimes I sound so idiotic. Um, so he confronts the abbot and he needs somebody to guide him into the marsh because they've discovered or they've heard that there's a village where nobody is getting sick in this marsh. Right. So they need to go and check it out and find out what it is. They have a suggestion or they've heard rumors that there might be some sort of, well, we don't hear this out for about 15 minutes into the movie or further on in the movie, that there's a suggestion that we've got some uh, necromancy going on. Now, straight away, I'm on board. I love a bit of necromancy in a movie. If you can raise the dead and then turn them into some sort of evil zombie monsters, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be wanting to watch this. So I got excited when I found this out and they're looking for someone to guide them. And that's when our friend, Eddie Redmayne, Osmond, out of nowhere, volunteers to go with them. With the bishop's blessing, I may choose any man here. Out of respect, I grant you that choice. I will lead you. No, he is a mere novice. This requires a more experienced hand. Let him speak. You say the village you seek lies in the Great Marsh. I was raised close by in Denbridge Forest. I know the area better than any man. I still, even having watched the movie, have no idea how he thought volunteering was going to help him so, with the situation. I think he's volunteering because he has his plan that his girlfriend is going to take off and he's also going to take off so that they don't mm -hmm. both get the plague and then he's going to meet her in the woods somewhere. And I guess he figures it might be easier to sneak away from Ulrich and his buddies than it is to sneak away from the monastery. You know the Martyr's Cross at Dentwich Forest? I will wait for you there every morning at dawn for one week. And then I will be gone. That's what I was thinking as well. But Ulrich and his buddies are highly trained, angry, and I mean every single one of them is angry, knights, who are requiring him to lead them to a place. Of all the people in the world I wouldn't want to sneak away from, it's Ulrich and the boys. Yeah, so it might be a really bad plan. 
my theory is that that's still supposed to be the plan that he thinks that, okay, this will get me out of the monastery. It'll get me closer with an armed escort to the spot where I'm supposed to meet her because he clearly is not armed and is not, you know, wielding a sword and probably has never learned how to wield a sword. Um, So he probably thinks there's, you know, some benefit to being able to go through the woods with some armed knights for a little while and then can sneak away from them and meet his girlfriend and they will, I guess, have a really easy time of it blending into the population and pretending he's not a monk. Sarah, I'm assuming that we're dealing with um, Catholics at this point because it's before the Great Schism, so they're all Christians, but what order of Christians do you think Sean Bean would come from? based on his armor and general badassness. So he, assuming he is in fact a monk, which makes, or a a person who has taken clerical orders of some kind, he is probably from one of the military orders. He can no longer be a Knight Templar because the Knights Templar were wiped out in I think it's 1307 is the exact date. He does, however, have a Templar cross on his armor, so that's wrong. Now, the big question, as we always need to know when Knights Templar show up in our movies, do they get the cross correct? Yeah, they do. Well, so if he were a Templar, it would be the, the cross would be correct. But given the date, I think he's probably should be a Hospitaller, which would be a different sigil. Yeah. Um, and if, for those of you listening, we'll try and upload a picture of what a Hospitaller... I can't even pronounce the word. I'm going to call him a Hospitaller. Um, so what a hospitaller would uh, what their sigil would look like in comparison to that of uh, a Knights Templar but they are very different and one of them would not have existed at this time yeah one of them has been completely wiped out by the King of France (gasps) do you think maybe he's the last Templar if he is he would be a lot older because he could not have become a Templar before 40 years before this and so he looks Mm. a bit young to even be the last Templar I think the last Templar by this period would be like 70 Mm. well Sean Bean with the right makeup and with that funky beard, he's, he's rocking this movie. He, he can, he can pass. Dude. He can pass for a seven days. He's passing. He's putting in some just for men to keep the, the gray. <laughs> in his beard. So they all go uh, out together, uh, out together. It sounds like they're on a date, but uh, they all leave the um, monastery and Eddie Redmayne is leading them. And I've put up inverted commas and quote marks there because Eddie Redmayne doesn't actually know where he's going. He's just bringing them into the woods towards the marsh. And we get to, have conversations with the other men in Sean Bean's party and every single one of them is quite not what you would really think are the kind of people who would be representing the church they all seem angry and violent and I would almost say despicable yes they also really hate women as does I think this entire movie um (laughs) So they're spending a lot of time telling stories about the things that they've witnessed while, I guess, wandering around England, dealing with the Black Plague and seeing how people have reacted to the Black Plague. And uh, one of the things that they start to talk about is this village in which uh, I guess it's that they blame witches for the plague and assume women as a group are all witches. So it says at the end of the week, they had killed every woman in the village and the men were shagging pigs. By the time that night was through, they killed every woman in the village. By the end of that week, the men were shagging pigs. So that sounds like a lovely story for a bunch of men of the cloth to be telling one another. Yeah. Uh, The shagging pigs thing is one... No. No. Pigs are not an attractive animal. 
They are not an attractive animal, and also I think the choice to claim that the men were shagging pigs as opposed to the men were shagging other men is a very deliberate and I think somewhat homophobic choice, that they are okay with saying bestiality is what they were going for, but not sex with men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think uh, when we were watching this, I was discussing that um, I think we'd both come across stories of sailors who'd uh, had sex with sheep, and that's why they kept sheep in their cargo holds. Um, because it was something that was there and again it was to hide the fact or it was to give them an alternative to turning to homosexuality which a lot of sailors would have done at the time or probably still do. One thing that happens is they pass through a ruined village and we get to have a lovely lesson in the Misericordia. Yes. So what was the Misericordia? It was since as a, a Catholic who grew up in Ireland that's a group of nuns to me. Um, <laughs> who all run hospitals or schools. So what is the misericordia? Uh, so the term also refers to a dagger, which can is particularly known as something that was used for mercy killing to someone who was wounded. And so you have a man who is in their party who is discovered to, in fact, have the plague, and he is given the last rites, and then he is stabbed. And they stab you in a particular way, uh, in under your left armpit, yeah, and it goes in. It's kind of got like a almost a twist to the blade, and they get it till it hits your heart, and then it draws the blood out, and allows you to bleed to death very very quickly. Um, so therefore, hence mercy killing. However, the bubonic plague is a blood-borne virus uh, or bacterium. Uh, it's a virus, and that's possibly the worst way to kill a man and not spread the disease is to allow his blood to seep into the ground or just even be exposed to the air. So they might yeah, be mercy killing him. Call. It was probably a bad call at the time. Although, however, they didn't have any scientists back in those days. They had scientists. They were just wrong. They were just wrong. <laughs> so we learned about that. And then we get them camping out for the night near a certain set of crossroads. And this is the set of crossroads that Sarah referenced earlier where Avril, um, the blonde lady who says seven words during the movie, uh, is going to meet Osmond. So Osmond sneaks away from the party. And what happens when he gets to the crossroads, Sarah? So he gets to the crossroads. He's hoping to find Avril. Instead, he only finds her horse and some, you know, ripped in clothing stained by blood. And then while he's hanging out at the crossroads and trying to sort of figure out what's going on, um, the group is then attacked by bandits. Yeah, random bandits. I thought these guys were connected to the rest of the movie. I assumed that they'd come back and we'd find out that the village that we're going to has sent them out to kill the envoys from the bishop. But nope, they're just random wandering. As we know, and we'll talk about this in many, many episodes there, the Dark Ages, the uh, Middle Ages, were just a violent time where... People were just waylaid every single day. Just constantly. I mean, bandits are just always there. You just always are being killed by bandits. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing, too, is that, I mean, so there were certainly bandits in the Middle Ages, but plenty of bandits don't actually necessarily feel the need to kill people. They're actually just pretty happy to essentially hold you at sword point and steal your stuff. Yeah, because bandits are smart. Yeah. So they know that if they rob you today and leave you alive, they can rob you next week again. Right, and also they're going to be probably less enthusiastically hunted down if they're robbing but not killing people. Yeah, 
And the whole thing about witnesses is it's not as if you can look for them on CCTV or anything like this here. So a witness is only as good as the word. And if you're robbing relatively poor people, who's going to listen to them anyway? Because as we know, it was a bad time to be a peasant back in the, uh, the Middle Ages. And at that point, uh, one of our soldiers dies. So we already lost two out of the party of eight to begin with. So we're di- I think were there eight to begin with? Uh, that, that sounds right. Yeah, so we've lost two out of the party of eight already, and that's before we even get to the marsh. At this point, Sean Bean, Ulrich, questions um, Osmond quite vociferously and gets the truth out of him, is that Osmond has been lying to him all this time and says, I don't know much about the marsh. I was coming here to meet my girlfriend. I think he actually says girlfriend, which oh, I'm does not he? certain is a phrase. I think he does. I'm not certain if that's a phrase people would have used back in... No, not really. Um, but he says I was coming. He either says I was coming to meet my woman or my girlfriend. I almost certainly says girlfriend, um, which was just a bit weird. And he says it in Eddie Redmayne whisper. I was coming to meet my girlfriend. And then Sean Bean is like, I don't care. You're driving us into the marsh. You're leading us into the marsh. Um, and I was genuinely at that point. I was like, good. I'm glad Eddie Redmayne is not getting with this because he endangered that poor woman. If he knew there was bandits in the woods, and it's the medieval times, so there were always bandits in the woods. Why did he let her go alone into the woods in the first place? Why was she wearing a white dress? And how did she manage to afford a horse? Also, who is this woman? She's living, it seems like, practically in the monastery, which makes no yes. sense. And he just sneaks back into her rooms. Um, he's about as subtle as Tristan and Isolde, in so far as they were like making out beside the main road. Uh, assuming that nobody would come at past at any stage um, and these guys he's just like walking out of he, he's meeting with the abbot the abbot talks to him about what it's like to be a monk and how he needs to be a stronger monk and then he leaves and walks across the courtyard and into this woman's apartment right so, and this woman also apparently has no family i mean it's a little odd for this very young woman i mean she's probably supposed to be i don't know say about 20 maybe that this Mm -hmm. very young woman is living completely alone and unsupervised so it's a little strange as well from her perspective of who is her family if she's that young and doesn't have family unless she happens to be independently wealthy it seems like she would probably be living in somebody's house as a servant but instead she's just living in this kind of hut alone near a monastery which seems strange seems strange but she's been murdered now we are to assume um and that's what eddie redmond definitely assumes because he sees blood on some white cloth and the horse is just standing there she's like oh no she's dead although that actually doesn't make any sense because if she was murdered you would think she would have been murdered by the bandits who would have taken the horse that's exactly (laughs) what i was thinking at the time it's like yeah fair enough they're going to murder her and um you know probably do worse to her but the horse is there the horse is probably like, the most valuable thing this woman it's has the most valuable thing there yeah and again she probably couldn't afford a horse but she managed to get one anyway and still they just leave it and we're left to assume that the horse is just there it's like whatever so from that point eddie redmayne leads them into the marsh um, the marsh being a disgusting, horrible place, which they managed to get through without much of a problem. Just get onto a boat and get yeah. pulled to the village. And what's the village like, Sarah? Uh, so Wikipedia describes it as eerie, which that seems about right. So basically they get to this village and it's uh, 
does nobody has the plague so that is very nice for them it also is completely run by women which is kind of cool um, and particularly it is run by Melisandre from Game of Thrones Carice Van Houten or as I like to call her sexy sexy Melisandre yes uh, she is also the most colorful thing in this entire movie since she has a dress that is light blue. So this is the closest we get in this movie to something that is not gray or brown. And her color, her hair color is a red, like a bright blondish red, like a, an auburn. Yeah, she's, or she's like, a, it's like a strawberry blonde kind of color. Mm. Yeah. And as we were watching it, or both of us were talking about how drab the movie had been to this point. I was even taking pictures of it and like... This is meant to be green, so like pictures of trees. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie, which I'm assuming is everybody, um, no one has seen this, this movie. This is the dullest movie you will ever like. They're outside in England in the middle of the summer, which is one of the greenest places you're ever going to see, and it is grey. The trees are grey. The grass is grey. It was so washed out or faded, and this is obviously an artistic choice from the director. Um, it was so washed out and faded that. The scene at the crossroads, which takes place on some sand, I actually thought it was, did suddenly stepped into a winter scene. <laughs> yeah, right. Although when you get into the village, it's also like the village just in general is, it's not exactly colorful. I mean, although she definitely like has a bit more color happening than anyone else in this movie, but it's also much mm-hmm. just lighter physically. Just everything in this village is at least like a little bit just kind of shinier. Um, and, yeah. you know, more white than grey. It's a more modern village. I, the, it, you said it was described as eerie. I would almost say it, was, it would be idyllic is what they're going for. Yeah, Wikipedia um, says eerie utopia, which I kind of like. Yeah, that's a nice way to describe it. Yeah. Because, it's, like, everything seems to be very pastoral. They've got their own little cultivated gardens. Every hut seems nice. And every person that they meet, once they've been introduced to them, has not been a threat or not an obvious threat, people are smiling and happy at them. Yeah, everyone seems initially very non-threatening. Uh, they initially seem very welcoming and very happy to have this group of people just kind of hang out in their village, which if I were a village and in the Middle Ages and a bunch of heavily armed men walked into it, I'm not sure welcoming would be my initial reaction. What brings you to our village? We seek refuge. A place to rest, nothing more. Then you are welcome. Word of the pestilence has not reached you. Word is all that has reached us. Come. Yeah. And then what I found strange was, um, so the main man in the village is a tall dude named Hob. Um which is a, another strange name, but maybe it's a, a common name back in the day. Uh, he takes the knights um, into the bar to go drinking. And for some reason, and I, I couldn't quite figure out why, uh, Melisandre, or her name is Langiva in the movie, or Langiva, uh, she decides to take Eddie Redmayne for a walk. Yes. Do you know why she picked Eddie Redmayne? No, it's actually not clear. So that is actually evidence that she should have magic. Because otherwise, yes. how would she have the knowledge that she has? That's exactly what I was thinking. Is What we're going to find out is that she has the body um, of Eddie Redmayne's girlfriend. So she's able to take Eddie Redmayne out from the group of soldiers and take him away. But if she 
didn't know this. So how did she know Eddie Redman was the one to pick? Because obviously, of the group of men who come into the village, there's one clear leader, and it's Sean Bean's character, Ulrich. So why would she want to go for a walk with random thing? Now, I thought maybe it was because he's a monk, and that makes sense later on when you see what they're trying to get them to do. Right. Because maybe she assumes he's the most devout of the members. But it still doesn't explain how she knows that Eddie Redmayne is going out with the body that she has. And what she does is she brings him and shows him the body of Avril. Right. I mean, it could be positive. Maybe that there was a period where Avril was in slightly better shape and, you know, mentioned that she had this monk boyfriend. And so that, you know, she kind of guessed based on that. But Mm. that... I think I might be giving too much credit to the movie with that theory. <laughs> That's that is yeah. When we have to start explaining stuff that happened off screen, and it's a, a huge possibility. I think we are giving them too much credit. Um, so Sean Bean and his boys start drinking in the pub, and the local girls uh, get up close and personal with them, and they they all seem very nice and friendly. Um, before this, Sean Bean had been very inappropriate with a young woman by walking over and just reaching out to grab something that was on her chest. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a necklace, which was similar to his own. And it turns out there had been previous envoys sent to the village. Right. The party was sent before us, charged with the same task. Four men, none returned. They were led by a man like myself. This symbol is worn only by the bishop's envoy. The girl wore its twin. And only an envoy of the bishop would have this particular necklace and she is wearing it around her rather ample chest which we get two close-ups of for no reason other than to show that this lady has breasts yep um uh, you also get to see a couple of kind of nice shots of uh, men generally being violent against women like uh, the other man who you know rejects a woman who is coming on to him and feels the need to not just you know say no like a normal person but to very violently grab her by the hair and kind of pull her shove, neck back. Yeah, and yeah. pull her neck back in this extremely threatening way um, and yeah. kind of whisper menacingly at her that he is not interested. He's shy. I am ugly. And I am Christian. And that's not a good combination in here. His name is Griff, and around about this point, this is where we started talking about hashtag let him die, um, hashtag let them all die, I think at this point, because yes. all of these men are pretty despicable, and it's one of those movies where you're sitting thinking to yourself, who am I rooting for here? And I know not every movie has to have a hero, but when your protagonists are all absolute assholes, it's hard to find enjoyment in a movie to me. It is. And I actually, I think we forgot to mention, I actually had a hashtag let him die earlier because there was Mm -hmm. that woman that they kind of ran into that somebody else was going to execute as a witch. Yes. Um, And then Sean Bean decided to, I think he like asked her one question and then he just stabbed her. Yeah. And then later on explained it to Eddie Redmayne, like he was doing her a favor. Oh no. Uh, once I got her off the cross, yes, they would have believed me because I'm a church knight. But 
they would have just chased her down as soon as we left and killed her and burned her. So the woman was already dead. But I freed her. The mob would have caught her again and burned her. I spared her suffering. I was doing her a favor. Yes, that was actually another uh, mercy killing that we had there. So uh, that's apparently Sean Bean's M.O. Yeah, and I think he slits her throat. So yes. it's not even like he did the misericordia. No, that's right. Yeah, he just slit her throat. But yeah, the fact that your ostensible hero or one of your two ostensible heroes murders a woman about 25 minutes into the movie is never a great sign. Yeah, and just brutally, quickly, easily just... There's your knife. And you get those wonderful movie sound effects of somebody bleeding out and in pain. Yeah. Thanks, movie. I'm delighted I watched you. This movie has some great sound effects. It does. Uh, we'll get to that and we're <laughs> going to introduce some of them now in a minute. At this point, um, while Eddie Redmond is away, the other soldiers who have been busy making friends with the ladies in the tavern start realizing that they've been drugged. And Hob comes into the pub or into the bar, and uh, he grabs Sean Bean and he says, my favorite line from the movie. As a Christian, you'll appreciate the concept of betrayal. It's a beautiful line. It's a beautiful line, and he delivers it with gusto. And he's, he's got a knife up to Sean Bean's show. He's like, as a Christian, you'll appreciate the concept of betrayal. It's, it's really good, and it's a, a line that is too good for this movie. I think I want to use this line in my daily life. As a Christian, you'll appreciate the concept of betrayal. But, <laughs> but it is far too good for this movie. I think that might be the best thing that happened in this movie. It was, uh, for me, it was most definitely the best thing that happened in this movie. Up until the point where uh, Sean Bean bites it. Um, and we're coming up, we're fast coming up. We're getting there. So, at the same time, Melisandre, or uh, Langeva, she takes Eddie Redmayne out into the woods to see some sort of rite taking place. And he sees a couple of women standing around in, in white dresses that are clearly up to no good, stroke evil magic is afoot. And she walks over and there's a, a white bag on the ground and she starts fiddling around it. It's not quite clear what she's doing. There's some chanting. And then suddenly... Uh, Kimberly herself wakes up, that's Avril, and she's alive. And Eddie Redmond is shocked, and he's not sure what's going on, but he runs because clearly she was dead before, and now she's alive, so he knows his necromancy. He runs back into the village to warn his friends. That's when Hob comes and wakes them up, so this was happening simultaneously, and that's when they all get put into a big cage in the town's water supply. And they are standing in the water, with their hands bound inside this cage. And this leads to the climax of the movie, which is how the village turns out to be super evil and super hating on the church nights. Super evil, but also I think I might kind of be on their side. I'm almost <laughs> definitely on their side. So what did they do, sir? So they have all of these men who have been uh, kind of put into the water. But so actually, isn't it before that, the scene with Osmond and Avril? The scene where he goes up to find her in the house? Yes. Isn't that before comes, everyone gets put into the water? It comes after. No, he goes up to get her. And then when he comes back, it's just before Sean Bean gets killed. Oh, okay. That's right. Okay. 
Right. So, so we get uh, we get two deaths before that. Yes. So uh, essentially, they're all kind of all of the knights are trapped into this pit of water, and uh, Langaiva tells them essentially that uh, they are planning on killing them unless they renounce Christianity. And so there is this interesting reversal of what you might ordinarily see of pagans murdering Christians because they believe that will end the plague. Mm-hmm. So they have these men, they keep telling them, okay, if you renounce Christianity, you will be set free and you can join us. They all initially refuse. One then gets crucified. Yeah, and it's a slow crucifixion. You get to see him getting stabbed. Um, this would not be the first time we've talked about crucifixions on the, the podcast. Um, this is definitely not as much fun as the other crucifixion we've definitely talked about. But he gets nailed to the cross and then Hob ever so slowly sticks a knife into his stomach and disembowels him and we get to see the blood flowing from him and then all of the other knights get really grumpy and start shouting as if they're going like at this point this is when the other knights who are in a cage in the water tied up start screaming that they're going to kill the villagers and I'm just wondering why it took the death of their friend to have this happen. Not while they were drugged, not while they were put into the cage, not while they were tied, not while they took him out and threatened to make him or to kill him. They had to wait until the actual murder took place for them to get angry enough to shout, We're going to kill you! We're going to, I'm going to kill you! I'm going to crush you! Bitch! Bitch! I'm fucking killing you, bitch! I slice you open! but it happens right i mean there's something visceral i guess about watching your friend get crucified but this does seem like a pretty angry group of men so it seems odd they wouldn't have been upset earlier exactly they were taking it very very calmly up until the point where this guy dies they come back and they're going to pick another one of the men that are left in the cage and this so the idea is that they're going to torture somebody until somebody renounces and one of the guys volunteers to renounce so what happens at that point so this guy who you know is not really very impressive it only takes watching one person to get cru- get crucified to decide oh no i'm going to renounce christianity i'm i'm good yeah, hey, I'm, where, I'm a pagan where's now. his faith where is his faith? His, his faith is apparently not very strong, but the joke is on him because they just sort of take him away from the rest of the group and then also kill him. Yes, and they hang him. Yes. Because he's a pagan, so he doesn't need to be disemboweled <laughs> and crucified. Yeah, we, we don't need to do the whole crucifixion thing. You'll you'll just get the... I'm not even sure it's especially a more merciful death. Hanging is still pretty bad. Yeah, I imagine it's not comfortable. Yeah, so he just gets killed somewhere else. Hmm. And then we get back to the cage and Langeva comes down and she picks out Eddie Redmayne's character, Osmond, and she sends him up to one of the huts where we're going to find that Avril is in the hut waiting for him because they're expecting him to talk to her and come back down and renounce God. And at this point, this is where I was thinking she'd picked him out in the first place because he was a monk and younger than them. And they want him, who they see as the most religious or least corrupt of the group, to renounce. Now, obviously, they don't know what we know, which is that he's not a very churchy monk. But Although the fact that they brought him to see Avril at that point implies to me that they knew about their relationship. 
because I think he want yeah, because I think they wanted him to, they were like, oh, you should renounce God and then you can be with this nice lady. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You you get a nice... That's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, you get a nice blonde woman. It's a honeypot situation. So instead, uh, Osmond decides to use this nice blonde woman to demonstrate his uh, deep belief in Jesus Christ by stabbing her to death. Stabbing her to death because she can't talk to him, which is... Another way of saying that women are inferior to men and can't converse on a level with them. So he just gets rid of her. Yeah, I mean, she seems a little, like, confused and out of it, which, to be honest, is what you would probably expect from somebody who had been very ill quite recently. Mm -hmm. If she'd been hit in the head, which was implied she was because she had blood in her face, there's a good chance she's got concussion and isn't aware of what's going on. Yes. If she had been dead and brought back to life by a necromancer there's a good chance she doesn't know what's going on. I mean, I've never been experienced that. I've had concussions several times, but I've never had the act of dying and then being brought back by evil magic. But if I did, I imagine it would be quite confusing. I mean, I've never had a concussion or been resurrected, but, you know. How have you never had a concussion, Sarah Decker? I did not play sports, so... <sighs> God. <sighs> I... And literally all of my major injuries have been since I started running. So it's probably good that I did not in high school have any athletic endeavors whatsoever. <laughs> Academia was your one true sport. Exactly. So Eddie Redmond kills her in the fashion that we have learned, which is the mercy killing and stabs his, the woman of his dreams, the woman that he had renounced Christ officially before this and was about to leave the monastery and he stabs her under the armpit and lets her bleed out. And then he carries the body down to Melisandre. And he is very proud of himself for having murdered this poor woman because he has freed her soul from the state of being undead. Exactly. I have freed her. I will not renounce God. That's my impression of Eddie Redmayne and his amazing acting abilities. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne has about as much personality as a wet towel in this movie. <laughs> he really, really does. Um, at this point... They are going to kill Eddie Remin and they beat him and may in, or, uh, add in some sound effects of him getting punched in the face because that means I get to listen to Eddie Remin getting punched in the face. Um, but then Sean Bean says, no, take me instead. And he gets taken out of the uh, pit. So he gets dragged out of the pit, which happens to free his friends because he was tied to them. So when they untie him, it makes them a little bit freer, which is going to lead to what happens in a few minutes. Yes. But while they take him out, rather than crucifixion for Sean Bean, what do we get happening to Sean Bean? He gets drawn and quartered. So they awesome. tie him to some horses and then have the horses run in opposite directions. And we get these amazing sound effects of Sean Bean dying. Uh, please enjoy and myself and Sarah will return in about 30 seconds because I think that's about as much as people can take repent before it is too late <laughs> repent will renounce. Definitely. Ah! 
Sean Bean has now died. About how long into the movie was Sean Bean killed? Sean Bean was killed one hour and 21 minutes into the movie, Sarah, because I thought it would be one hour and 20 minutes, and I was out by a minute. Oh, because I knew it was the kind of movie he either died early or died late, and he happens to die late. Yeah, so we had a Sean Bean Bean (laughs) death pool going. I was thinking that his death was going to be a catalyst for Eddie Redmayne to do something interesting, which he never, in fact, does. And so I thought it was going to come a little bit earlier. I thought it was going to come at right about the hour mark. So mm-hmm. Ollie won the Sean Bean Deadpool. Yes. Which means Sarah now owes me a beer. Yes. Now, after Sean Bean gets ripped apart by horses, and I cannot stress this enough, in this movie, Sean Bean gets ripped apart by horses. His and two reacts friends, to it gruntingly. He gruntingly. He 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 no sells it like it's. I imagine it is incredibly painful. He's just gonna like yeah whatever. I'm Sean Bean. I've died before. Um, his two friends escape. Eddie Redmond is still lying on the ground in a bloody pulp, which is uh, nice for me. Um, but his two friends escape and get swords. And because they are trained knights, and all of the rest of the villagers are not, they start killing people. But as Sarah mentioned earlier, most of the villagers are women and unarmed. So it's a wonderful scene of some trained soldiers killing a few men and women in a village uh, most of them having like pitchforks and lumps of wood in their hands this is one of the other moments of this movie where i said i think this movie really hates women it most definitely does we're not even at the worst offense of that yet we are not it gets worse they just they gets very much worse so they kill some women and they manage to escape eddie redmayne survives uh, Melisandre runs off into the marsh and he chases her and then the Irish guy who was there I can't remember his name um, but he Sarah do you remember what his name was? Oh no I have and no I, idea what any of these people's names are oh, is, it's, he, it's, it's, is he Wolfstan? It's Wolfstad yes. yes so Wolfstad survives um, and he takes Hob as a prisoner and he's going to lead him back to the bishop as evidence that they took the necromancer down who was living in the village one thing which is revealed at this point or just before this is that Sean Bean's character had contracted the plague. So while he was in the water and he was bleeding and then they ripped him apart in the middle of the town square, any of the villagers who weren't killed by swords will have now contracted the bubonic plague. And Something that, is, that he probably got from stabbing that other guy. From stabbing the other guy. The Good stab. job, Sean Bean. Yeah, exactly. It's your own fault. You led this and you brought this on yourself. But Eddie Redmayne goes into the marsh and he chases Melisandre stroke Langiva. And she then reveals what, and I'm not sure whether she did this just to mess with him or tell, or she's telling the truth. But what does she tell Eddie Redmayne? She says that she, in fact, is not a witch. She has no necromancer. She's just a nice lady who is good at plants. And she's an herbalist. Avril had been sick. She'd managed to heal Avril, but she was she was drugged, basically, I think she says. So again, you know, completely actually does make sense that she would be on essentially, you know, painkillers and therefore would be a little bit out of it and wouldn't necessarily recognize people easily. And that, in fact, Osmond just murdered his perfectly alive girlfriend, and Lankava then disappears into the midst and escapes. And then Eddie Redmond, king of the flip floppy, who went from not being a particularly churchy monk to never renouncing God, starts shouting after her, no, come back. You can bring her back to life. <laughs> um, so 
So the reason that all of this went down is because he didn't believe she could bring it back to life. Then the woman tells him, I didn't do the bring it back to life. And he's just suddenly, no, bring her back, bring her back, bring her back. You literally had that opportunity, Eddie. Stop being such a douchebag. Right. So now he clearly thinks that she can bring her back to life and wants her to do so because I guess he's changed her, his mind about this whole Jesus thing and is back to not being a very churchy monk once again because he wants to be with his girlfriend. But Langva has disappeared into the midst and is not into helping him, which seems fair. I also would not help him. <laughs> yeah. So Eddie Redman gets back with uh, Wolfstadt and... They leave in a cart, which is funny because they had to come in a boat, but they leave in a cart <laughs> with, with Hob, as I said. And as we're leaving, we get a voiceover from Hob saying that they had no magic uh, in the village, that the only thing that was keeping them safe was the magic of being isolated. And that as soon as the um, envoys had come, that that's when the bubonic cake came in and it killed the same, the village was the same as the rest of the world was. Which, to me kind of ruins the premise of the movie. I, I think it would have been better if we had have had real magic or real evil involved um, as a way to stave off the punishment of God. Because as Melisandre's character, Langiva, uh, says that your God has been punishing people with the black pig. As pagans, we haven't been punished and we don't want your Christianity in the village because Christianity brings with it retribution from God. Right, and I think that could have been a really interesting reversal if they decided to stick with that, with the whole kind of paganism is actually the right way to go thing. But instead, they do not. They, they just say that there is no magic and that Eddie Redmayne is now a very sad, lonely, broken man. Yes, and as we know, Sarah, what happens to all sad, broken, lonely men? They murder women, of course. Because that's what Eddie Redmayne ends up doing in this movie. First of all, he grows his hair long. He does. So now he's really not a churchy monk because he has long hair and he's carrying a sword. And the even hint of a tonsure that he once had is completely gone. When I say long hair, I want you to just picture episode two, Attack of the Clones. He has Anakin Skywalker's haircut. He definitely has Anakin Skywalker's haircut. He probably still doesn't like sand. I hate sand. It reminds me of how they murdered my girlfriend. And by they, I mean me. <laughs> yeah. It was a bit sandy when he stabbed her or anything. So what has he been doing in the time since the, the village incident? So he has, I guess, remained convinced that witches are in fact real, that Langava is in fact a witch, and that his best move at this point is to go and hunt her down. And so uh, you see him essentially hunting her down and killing her. But then the voiceover informs us that, in fact, it might not have been her at all. And he just essentially was going around murdering women, imagining them as Langeva. And then we get the piece of audio I'm about to introduce now. And I cannot stress this enough. This piece of audio plays over Eddie Redman smiling or kind of grimacing as a woman is burned at the stake. And then we get this. I like to think that he found peace. That he continued seeing beauty in the world. I like to think he found peace. I like to think he found peace. And that is genuinely played over a woman being burned at the stake. A random woman that he just picked up in an orchard that he thought looked like Langiva. 
uh, but we are shown clearly looks like a pretty black-haired woman langiva being a golden-haired medieval witch kind of look about her well because it switches because at first for the kind of first about half of the scene it actually is langiva it's actually is carrie mm-hmm. svenhuden in the kind of position of the woman and then I can't remember exactly how they did it, but then it clearly just switches it, and demonstrates. It switches as yeah. the voiceover says, but some people say he never found her. He never found anyone who even looked like her. He was just seeing her face all the time. And then we get his point of view, which is it's Langiva, but for everybody else, it's just random black haired lady. Yeah. So uh, essentially he is delusional and imagining that most women he meets are this apparent witch that he encountered one time and then killing them and this is how mm-hmm. he has found peace in his later years as as we all do um sarah as we all do and this is the point where every one of our main male characters who was named has either stabbed hit or killed a woman throughout the movie i mean he's already done it with his girlfriend but this guy is now doing multiple Wolfstadt had killed a couple in the village. Sean Bean had killed the one lady and uh, the other named characters at all either hit them or tried to take advantage of them at some point. So when you said that the movie hates women, I'm 100% behind you on this one. This movie hates women. I also would like to introduce a new test for movies. So everyone at Mm -hmm. this point is very familiar with the Bechdel test that there have to be two women who have names talking about something that is not a man. I would like to introduce the If Decker test, which is that there has to be at least one named female character that definitely doesn't die. Okay. And this movie so does not pass the, that test. The If Decker test. Every movie we watch from now on, if a named female character does not survive by the end of it, it has failed the test. And this movie most definitely fails the test. Yeah, so that's a choice that they made with this movie to just kill every woman in it. <laughs> It really would, or really was, and it was horrible. So, Sarah, we're going to get to our next segment. Our next segment is my favorite when we're doing this podcast. You're going to tell us what the movie got right, and then you're going to tell us what the movie got wrong. Yes. So, for its setting, 1348, what did the movie get right? So one thing that they got right is they actually know where you would typically look for the plague buboes. So one of the signs that somebody has the Black Plague is that you have these kind of purplish swellings, and they are typically in your groin, neck, and armpits. And that is, in fact, exactly the place it is specifically in the armpits where they look to see if that person that's suspected of being the, of having the plague has one, um, and he, in fact, does. So that's uh, that's one thing that they get right uh, so they, Good. they now, as a lay person i'm just going to say to our listeners that it's called the bubonic plague and sarah is not saying she's looking for the boo-boos yes it's the b-u-b-o she's saying uh, it was just when you said it it sounded like and they looked for the boo-boos <laughs> of the plague the mild injuries that you have when you have the black plague oh can i kiss it better oh that's how you get rid of the black plague um what else did they get wrong? right, Sarah? They also know who the King of England is. It is not entirely clear from this movie itself that it takes place in England. I think that is actually only something that you can ascertain by looking up the movie on Wikipedia. But they do, however, at some point reference King Edward. Um, and in fact, in 1348, the King of England is Edward III. So they know who the king is. So that's, that's something else that they got right. 
what so Edward III was the king at this time. What's Edward III famous for? Edward III started the Hundred Years' War and is responsible for many of England's initial military successes during the war. Oh, so the Hundred Years' War was with France. Yes, so it was in, in fact, right up just approximately 100-year-long war between England and France, which happened because Edward III announced that he was the rightful heir to the French throne. Oh, he just announced it. Did he have any actual claim to the throne yes so he actually did have a claim but that was uh he was descended from a woman who was one of the daughters of a king of france and his claim actually could have potentially been okay except for the fact that at that point in order to deal with some succession disputes the um french government had officially decided that no claims based on descent from a woman were valid okay so Um, yeah that would make sense yeah you just cut out a lot of them if you just say that it has to be related to a man i mean it seems a little bit short-sighted but i mean it's on brand with the movie so it is yeah so and one of the reasons they did this was uh essentially because of succession disputes um and one of the kind of benefits to that was that oh good we have this kind of way to get rid of these kings of england to have this these claims through various french princesses so what did the movie get wrong, Sarah? Well, this is my favorite bit, right? And uh, for anyone who's listened to the podcast before and uh, anybody who, who has just talked to Sarah in general, there's nothing I like more than Sarah getting super specific in the stuff she goes. They wouldn't have had an amethyst at this time um, or something along those lines. So, Sarah, what did the movie get wrong? Uh, so I'm going to start with my most nitpicky complaint about this movie. The nitpickier um, the better. Yes, which is that at some point behind, I guess, probably Eddie Redmayne, you see a lovely, uh, what looks like a kind of wood polychrome Jesus, which to me really looks 15th century. So it's about a century off on on your Jesus. Mm. Um, it looks very late. It looks a bit late to me in terms of what that Jesus actually looks like. Now, one thing I would say is that the Jesus looks buff as fuck. He does look um, very buff. Like all good Jesuses, he's not just some skinny guy who was living out in Israel. He is some skinny guy who was crossfitting it all the time. I mean, yes. crossfitting and, and hitting the gym. And he never skipped leg day either. He is also very pale. So he is also a skinny guy who was crossfitting in like England as opposed to a skinny guy that was crossfitting in the Middle East. Well, as we all know, <laughs> Jesus was most definitely not a darker skinned, swarthier kind of dude. Nope, he was a very white man. Of, of course, with a beard. In fact, if anything, he looked like one of the Bee Gees. Yeah, pretty much. I like to call him Bee Gee Jesus. Yeah. That's how I like to imagine my Jesus. He's a Barry Gibb of Jesus. Wait, no. Was Barry Gibb the handsome Bee Gee? Wait, that's beside the point there. Bee Gee <laughs> CrossFit Jesus. Bee Gee CrossFit Jesus. So <laughs> that is pretty nitpicky. What else did they get wrong, Sarah? Uh, so I think I touched on this slightly earlier, but the names in this movie drove me slightly insane, as mm-hmm. I said, because uh, this is really a period where pretty much everyone is going to be named after one of a very small set of saints. And so the fact that they decide to introduce, you know, people with names like Avril and Langaiva is... Uh, Langaiva, I think, actually might be a very early me- uh, medieval name. Osmond is also a name that was quite popular in the earlier Middle Ages, but there are not a lot of people in England in the 14th century named Osmond. So the names very much irritated me. But my biggest complaint about this movie, and this is not picky at all, I think this is actually pretty major is that they did not, in fact, start killing women en masse as a reaction to the Black Death, 
or in um, you know and persecuting them as witches and nor in fact is that a medieval is that a medieval phenomenon it's an early modern phenomenon so what um so the movie clearly and goes through at least two different stories and we get to see them trying to kill uh langiva it implies that people believe that the black death was called by women and witchcraft in particular right so you're saying that people didn't feel this back in the time like this wasn't a belief that they held no so it was not at all so there are and i'll talk about this in a second there are various other you know responses to the plague other things that they thought might have caused the plague and the kind of mass murder of women and the belief that witchcraft is this kind of serious concern that we have to go after is something that really doesn't start until at least the kind of 15th century or so in England, probably more like the 16th. And so, you know, you're really a lot early for the height of witch, of witch persecution. And what did lead to the early modern period of witch, witchcraft belief? So the origins are the kind of thing that are a little bit in shadow, um, but it does seem to have been starting in about... In the, shadow, in sh- like the witches themselves. And like this movie, which is very much in shadow. <laughs> but it seems like in about the 1430s or so in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, so it's now Germany in particular, they started being more interested in witchcraft after the um, uh, rise of the print, the invention of the printing press. One of the genres of books that become popular are essentially manuals about witchcraft. So essentially how to recognize a witch and what to do about her. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, so my favorite of these is uh, the Malleus Maleficarum, which literally means Hammer of Witches, which is published in 1487. I actually did look up this okay. date. That's awesome. I would love that to be my nickname. The Hammer, the of, Hammer witches. of Witches. It's also at around this period where you start to see a lot of uh, sort of visual depictions of a number of kind of odd belie- odd beliefs about women and witchcraft. My personal favorite is that witches either had cat familiars or turned into cats, and that the cats then went and stole men's penises. So there is a great picture that we can post of a cat just wandering around with a peanut, a disembodied penis in its mouth. Oh my God, Sarah. <laughs> <sighs> Of all the things I've learned for the podcast, that there is one of the most disturbing. It also explains why cats are so fond of sitting in my lap. They're, they're sent by the witches. They're sent by the witches. I knew it. Watch out. Okay. So, Sarah. You touched on this and you said, because obviously we get to the point where yes. you, let, uh, you get to talk to us about what actually happened. So this is our reality corner. So this is not the movie. This is what happened in the real 12th century when we had, or 14th century, when we had, um, I, I, that's the second time today I've done that, where I've, I've gone the year, the century behind instead of the century ahead <laughs> of the actual year. So 1348, so it's the, the 14th century. Yes. So what actually did happen with the bubonic plague and then how did people react to it and did they have a scientific method behind it or was it just willy-nilly running around killing random people and getting rid of them so one of the interesting things about the reaction to the plague is that people in the middle ages first of all there were actually doctors and scientists even if they weren't right necessarily about how science worked and natural philosophers yes natural philosophers and they did generally believe that 
it wasn't incompatible to think that the plague could have multiple causes, that people thought mm-hmm. it was perfectly normal, that the plague could be both something scientific and that there would be scientific ways to prevent plague or protect yourself from the plague, but that there are also religious explanations. Um, so the kind of main medical explanation for why the plague had come about was essentially that uh, there was corrupted air. So the medieval term was miasma. And so if you mm-hmm. avoided this corrupt air, then you could in turn avoid the plague. So on a personal level, you should kind of burn nice smelling woods in your house. You should also carry around various kind of nice herbs and smell them while you were walking about if you had to walk about. Ideally, you should even perhaps kind of seal off your house and try to not walk around that much to avoid the corrupted air outside. And then on a kind of broader citywide level, cities would actually do things like work harder to remove the corpses of animals and people from the street because these putrefying corpses were contributing to the corrupted air. So even if they were wrong about exactly what was going on, that actually probably was a good call on the whole in terms of sanitation and hygiene to remove dead animals and people from the streets. Why did we never think of this before? (laughs) And then also sometimes attempted to... uh, get trades that they saw as being dirty in particular ways to kind of move their activities to outside the city walls. So butchering, obvious one, given all of the dead animals and the kind of various runoff of blood and offal from the dead animals. There's a suggestion that if you were a butcher, you should do your butchering outside the city walls. Hmm. Tanning, um, the kind of leather, working in the leather industry was also seen as being something that was potentially dirty and corrupting the air. And so tanners were required in some towns to kind of move their activities to outside the city walls as well. And I believe that persisted well after the Black Death, so it would have ended up with tannery areas outside the city walls of a lot of cities, um, or as we looked, or as they used to be referred to. I think I remember reading somewhere that were called the Smelly District, because anyone who's ever been anywhere near Tanners, those things stink. So yeah. the, the, perfumed, the perfumed district is what they used to call it, the Smelly District. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so they'd always like thought of, you know, living near a tannery as something not necessarily desirable because it did just not smell very nice. But it's around this period that they specifically started to say, okay, it should be even further, it should be outside the city walls because it is contributing to plague by creating this corrupted air. Hmm. And how did people react after the plague? So we they had this several changes or whatever where they made butchers go outside and they made tanners go outside and they got rid of dead carcasses how did the general populace react so the general populace i would say you know some of them are just kind of listening to doctors and trying to follow the advice of the doctors but there is very much also a religious response that is something that many people find attractive the religious response takes a bunch of forms some of which are pretty innocuous and nice and some of which are much less so So on the kind of nicest end of the spectrum is that uh, your local church could have a lovely procession where you bring out some relics, maybe a nice image of the Virgin Mary, and you parade around with whatever your nice things are for a little bit, and then, you know, call upon, and you have a whole ritual set up to call upon, you know, Jesus and the Virgin Mary to intercede and to stop the plague, or for various saints to kind of help, you know, intercede and to stop the plague. There's also which yeah. uh, which saint would be the best for stopping the plague? Saint Roque is uh, one of the kind of plague saints in particular that he uh, he comes to be associated particularly with. Like he's the good saint to pray to to prevent plague. Saint Roque. Yeah, R O C. Oh my God, Dwayne the Roque Johnson is how I'm going to pronounce him from now on. <laughs> but um, 
So you have to so create a Dwayne the Rogue Johnson to uh, prevent the plague. Dwayne the Rogue Johnson to avoid the plague. The, so genuinely, uh, obviously, people who've been listening have brought this up before. I'm, I'm a Catholic. Uh, Sarah is a Jew. As uh, as a Catholic, I'm constantly uh, praying to Saint Anthony to find stuff. Would people have been praying to Saint Roque in similar ways? Like, oh, your your brother is sick. Pray to Saint Roque that he gets better. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that maybe, you know, if he had a shrine locally, you would actually go to the shrine and, you know, bring him an offering of some kind. There are a bunch of fun offerings that people bring people, that people brought saints of basically like body parts made out of wax. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you had a sore arm, for example. Yeah, you could kind of bring your arm to, yeah, a kind of nice wax arm. And does this strangely mirror voodoo? in some way like where different body parts can be affected by having a totem of them yeah it's not really that different i mean the idea is that in theory you're just essentially reminding the saint of the body part he needs to heal (laughs) (laughs) i know you're busy this is what my leg looks like it's my leg don't accidentally heal my arm my (laughs) arm is fine (laughs) oh god you healed the wrong leg (laughs) i wish you did the right one god damn it so was there any sort of religious persecution at all involved with the plague? Because um, that's what this movie kind of posits, is that the church went after people for the plague or related to the plague. And I, 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 I'm kind of sensing that that's not accurate. Yeah. So uh, first of all, so there is religious persecution. But first of all, the church tends not to be the one involved in the religious persecution. The church, if anything, actually tends to be something of a voice of reason saying that uh, this is not necessarily justified. But to the extent that there is religious persecution that results from the plague, um, it is more of a kind of thing that just people are kind of deciding somewhat spontaneously to do. But the main group of people who are the targets of this in Europe are the Jews. Mm -hmm. So not in England, because England doesn't have any Jews by 1348. Because they already got kicked out. But in a number of other places, so in particularly, uh, I think Strasbourg is one of the places, um, so a lot of places in what's now Germany, a number of places in the Iberian Peninsula, but various places all around Europe, that there are massacres of Jewish communities on the theory that either the tolerance of Jews is one of the sins for which the people are being punished, or going even further, that the Jews are actually poisoning the wells and deliberately trying to cause the plague which makes no sense because the jews are also dying of the plague so this is something that i've always um found confusing about this jewish people follow the same god as christians they just do it in a slightly different way but it's the same the same overarching power why have they gone after jewish communities and not say any remaining pagan groups because at this time there still would have been large pagan communities no there really wouldn't have been in 1348 where we're pretty much oh. done with pagans oh good we to get rid of <laughs> oh yeah guys. we got we got rid of the pagans ages ago um oh, so that means that the only other mainstream religion or opposite opposing religion would have been Yeah, I mean, so Islam as well is, of course, around, but they're the only place in Western Europe that really has a sizable Muslim community is uh, the various Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So Spain, Portugal. Yeah, or well, Spain wasn't a kingdom then. So Castile and Aragon are the two uh, kind of biggest Spanish kingdoms at the time that both would have had these big Muslim populations. But yeah, but there really wouldn't have been in most places, the only essentially minority community is the Jews. Yeah. 
So this makes sense that they, that's why they would go after them. I, I genuinely didn't realize we, uh, or we, actually, like we, as Christians. You, you Christians uh, successfully murdered all the pagans. <laughs> pagans are gone. We have to find somebody to get rid of now. On June 30th, 2020, Dana Milbank wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post entitled, Could America's Pandemic Response Be Any More Medieval? This piece features the, fascinating in some ways, paragraph, not for the first time, it feels as though 21st century America is 14th century Europe, reacting with all manner of useless countermeasures to the plague balancing ill humors and dispelling evil vapors caused by planetary misalignment, religious marches and public self-flagellation, cures involving live chickens and unicorns, and the wearing of amulets and reciting of abracadabra. Now we have science to tell us how to beat the coronavirus with face masks and social distancing. Yet our response is resolutely medieval. Medievalists read this, and we all universally would like to tell Dana Milbank that your comment is dumb and you don't know anything about the Middle Ages. This is not the first time that uh, I have seen this particular choice to describe the American or other handling of the pandemic as being, quote, medieval. Yet in reality, if we look at the medieval handling of pandemic, there are ways in which, in fact, it's A, not that different, and B, in some ways, much better. The word quarantine, a word that we are thinking about a great deal these days, comes from the Italian quaranta, referring to a 40-day period in which ships arriving from areas known to have the plague would have to sit in the harbor and people could not leave the ships. In other words, quarantine is in fact specifically a late medieval phenomenon. Social distancing, staying away from other people, making sure that people who come from affected areas have to quarantine and have to, in particular, be separate, as well as things like quick burials and attempting to communicate about where the plague is and is not happening. All of these efforts go back to the Middle Ages. The description of our current pandemic handling as medieval ignores the fact that although we certainly have some technologies that we would not have had in the Middle Ages, including, you know, being including certain testing facilities, the basics of essentially preventing COVID-19 are not that different from the basics that people sought to use to prevent people from getting the Black Death. And this then brings us to the other problem with this decision to mischaracterize the U.S. handling of the pandemic as medieval, is that the U.S. has made the particularly staggering choice to treat the pandemic as something that is political, and in the case of many Americans, to protest the idea of how to handle the pandemic in a way that is safe and involves preventative health care. And this is what's not happening in the Middle Ages. There certainly are people who embraced a religious response, as we talked about before, but even those people didn't see the religious response for the most part as being something that could not exist alongside responses that were preventative or scientific. And at the same time, we also don't have, we don't have people who are sitting around and protesting the concept of essentially having public health. 
That's kind of the brief version of why, in fact, calling the current handling of the pandemic as, quote, medieval is actually a really unfortunate one. Because in many ways, arguably, right now, we could be taking some pretty important lessons from the medieval world and from the medieval response to the Black Death. The one area in which there are some unfortunate similarities has to do with the fact that just as in the Middle Ages, some people responded by taking a vulnerable minority in their midst and attacking them and blaming them for contagion, in the same way, there are certain people in the United States who have responded to the pandemic with, in particular, anti-Asian sentiment, including, of course, Trump's insistence on referring to it as, quote, the China virus. This is the one way in which we are adopting the worst of the medieval response to the Black Death. This is what should be stopped. Quarantine and social distancing, both late medieval methods of responding to pandemic, are ones that unfortunately need to continue for the time being, meaning that a medieval response to pandemic is in some ways precisely what we need. Yeah, so Sarah, that's absolutely fascinating. And it's way more interesting. The, the real history of it is way more interesting than this movie's fake attempt at trying to sensationalize it and make it turn into some sort of witchcraft and, and magic thing at it. That, I mean, they could, have made, they could have made a better attempt at showing a realistic version of what had actually happened. Which leads us to our next little segment, which is called What Would We Have Done? So in this, we like to take the title of the movie and come up with a version of it that we would like to see get made. So Sarah, what movie would you like to see get made that's called Black Death? So I recently went to uh, basically a conference session, which was a reenactment game that you could play in classrooms of essentially how to react, how a city council would react to the Black Death. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that would be a great movie a movie that was just very much centered on a bunch of ordinary people in some medieval town, basically just debating, okay, the Black Death is here, or we think the Black Death is about to arrive because it's in the next village over. What is it that we do now? What steps do we take at this point? And I think it could be a really interesting kind of drama in terms of the kind of interpersonal relations between people as they debate what it is that they're supposed to do, that you could then add a lot to how their reactions possibly changed as, you know, members of their family perhaps then got the plague. I think it could be a really fascinating study in just how people respond to a crisis. Hmm. So the idea being that you're going to follow the city council of this village or town or city, as I said, um, and we'll just say it's York and York find out that Coventry have the plague in them and York doesn't have the plague yet. So are we going to seal the gates? Are we going to stop people from getting in and out? Are we going to stop trade? Are we going to, as you said, get the tanners outside of the city? Are we going to make people make it mandatory that everyone has to burn incense? So basically the kind of preventative measures as opposed to curing the disease. Right, exactly. And then they can also debate things like, you know, okay, so we have uh, those approaches to what extent should we be emphasizing those approaches as opposed to 
religious approaches and what are the religious approaches? Are, should we be doing the kind of nice religious approach that the church definitely sanctions of having a good relic procession? Should we be maybe inviting in uh, some of these kind of wandering flagellant uh, members of this flagellant movement, these people who are, you know, whipping themselves, whipping themselves in atonement yeah. for sins? Should we be inviting these people into the village? Should some of us be joining them? Is that a choice that we could be making? Oh, this is uh, very interesting. I would genuinely want to watch that movie. It sounds fascinating. Right. Now, this is, uh, see, this is why I don't like going after Sarah, because Sarah always comes up with a really good version of what you might do. And I'm like, I'd like to have Wesley Snipes with a sword killing people. Um, if I was to make a movie called Black Death, and instead of going completely away from it uh, and randomly just picking something that involves black and death, right? I think we should make a movie that is focused on the bubonic plague. However, having learned what you just told me about how they persecuted the Jewish community and knowing that the Jewish community would have had maybe a better understanding of medicine in general at this time. So I would like to set a movie in England at the same time the bubonic plague breaks out and follow a doctor who is trying to find a cure stroke vaccination for the disease. Hmm. So it's almost like a science-based program. So he's trying to use whatever medical knowledge he has. And yes, it would be not as good as modern medicine, obviously, but they wouldn't have been as backwards as we like to think, which is right. put leeches on them or bleed them. Leeches were not as common a use as people seem to think it was usually used to deal with swellings and bruises and stuff it wasn't used to oh you've got cancer better get the leeches out although they Not did actually they bloodlet people during the plague um, and specifically tried to bloodlet people's swelling buboes swelling stuff uh, which, yes, which was not a great idea incredibly wrong right <laughs> so i would like to follow a doctor in particular a jewish doctor who is going through this process and at the same time, he's under pressure because he knows that the Jewish community are going to get blamed for this. So he's trying to find a cure for the bubonic plague using what would have been modern science at the time. So I'd like to follow a character like that who's making a real effort to halt it while at the same time featuring or facing religious persecution or people who are just too scared to allow him to act on them. Um, maybe we could throw in something where his one of his children has started to develop the bubos um, or bubos, which I think this, is that the Greek word for groin. But anyway, so it's starting to develop the swelling. So he's under pressure to try and find a cure. And I'm not sure if we'd let him find a cure. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe I think it would have changed maybe history can... a little too much if he found the cure. But maybe it can be like the medicine man where he found it and then he lost it, you know, like you lost your keys. Um, so, uh, or he could be played by Sean Bean and we could watch him get killed. Oh my God. Sean Bean playing a Jewish doctor in 1348 would be unbelievable. Yeah. So that's what I would go. I would go, I would follow the medical route. Um, as most of my things is let's go for the science option. But for once you're the one who had the movie with the Jews. Uh. Yes. <laughs> well, I just once you told me that they were they were blamed for this. Like I like the I like the idea of the one person who's actually medically capable of fixing it or trying to find a cure or to come up with the ideas. And I like the idea of him coming in and saying, "Right, it's transported or it's passed by pestilence. It's passed by the blood. It's passed by fleas. We need to stop this." And then having 
random bishop going, no, don't listen to this man, and actually making the, the symptoms worse and making the, sorry, the symptoms, making the causes worse. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I think that, I think I'd like to see that. I would also cast see that Eddie Redmayne as a rat. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne can be in my movie, but he's one of the people who dies in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> Brutally. <laughs> Like you just you just uh, watch him dying of the plague, but you like you know really go into the detail. Exactly. Also, it's very important that in my movie some named female characters survive, and actually have agency in their own actions, as opposed to this movie, which apparently all of them die and none of them have any agency. The witch kind of had agency until she died. Oh, but then the point <laughs> where she gets wiped out. So, Sarah, our last segment is we're going to rate the movie. So, we normally give it a out of five, and then a little description. So, a two-line description of this movie, and then a rating out of five. So, uh, this is a movie that, as I have said a number of times, deeply hates women, and also, I think, does a poor job overall of depicting the medieval world. It, uh, I think, unnecessarily emphasizes the Middle Ages as being a period of violence, and in addition, kind of invents violence that didn't actually happen while wiping out violence that did. And I found that very irritating. And I'm going to give this movie a one. A one out of five. Yeah. Okay. I am going to give my two word review is I'm going to say that this movie should have been called Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> because that appears to be the only color that's involved. And that a movie which features no protagonist which is likable at all isn't a movie that I want to watch and I will also give it one out of five. Too grey, too bleak, too shit. One out of five. So we do not recommend the movie Black Death. We do not recommend <laughs> the movie Black Death. I will however recommend you go onto YouTube and watch Sean Bean dying in Black Death. That I highly recommend. Yeah. Um, Sarah, thanks so much for doing the podcast again this week. And I look forward to recording with you again. Thank you, Ollie. And I look forward to recording with you again next week. Bye-bye. Right. And everybody, Bye. let them die. Let them die. <laughs> <laughs>